0: Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe.
1: Hey y'all, it's Amber with another friendly reminder to join our Patreon. You can be a patron for 50 cents a month, $1, $3, $5, it does not matter to us. As a reminder, you get more content when you join the Patreon. And also we do a monthly book giveaway and today's lucky winner of the book Ring Shout by author P. Jelly Clark is I hope that doesn't sound really bad on the audio. The winner is Deja Lee. Deja you are the winner so I'm going to hit you up on the Patreon streets and send you a copy of this incredible book uh, at an address that is comfortable for you and remember patrons it's all good we have everybody's names in the queue for the next book giveaway which will be October 26th so if you can join the Patreon party. Now let's get started with the show. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Side under the Believe Podcast Network. It's a podcast about Black science fiction, fantasy, and staying on the same page in our marriage. Today, for your listening pleasure, we have an interview with Nicole Glover, who is the author of The Conductors. We gave away The Conductors in a previous giveaway for the Patreons. If you're into astrology and zodiac signs and all that, you're going to love Nicole Glover. She's obsessed with them, and constellations and character zodiac signs are infused without the entire story of The Conductors. I learned from this interview that there might be a 13th Zodiac sign. I, I don't know. I got to get my Zodiac shit together. All I know is we had a really great time. with. So sit back and enjoy this interview with author Nicole Glover.
2: All right. So uh, welcome. We are here with author uh, Nicole Glover to discuss their historical fantasy murder mystery novel, The Conductors. <laughs> um, I want to read uh, two plugs by authors we've actually had on this show before. So uh, Cadwell Turnbull, author of The Lesson and the recent book No, Gods, no Monster, Writes, The Conductors is a wildly inventive alternate history that combines compelling characters, um, a propulsive plot, and lots of intrigue. It is also radical as hell. Thought provoking and powerful. Glover's novel is a must read. And P. Jelly Clark, author of the Locust and Nebula-winning winning, uh, winning uh, book, Ring Shout writes, The Underground Railroad, but with magic, with compelling characters and wondrous world-building. Glover weaves a tangled mystery of murder, spellwork, and freedom amid the remnants of slavery's lingering memories. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Side, Nicole.
0: Hey, thanks for inviting me over. Uh,
1: so, Nicole, I, I'm not sure if you've read uh, Colson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad or not. Nat- uh, but your book is everything I thought that book would be, and that book was incredible i 'm not dragging that book, but I think when I heard it was like fantastical, your book was what I was envisioning so i 'm so grateful that um your book exists so we 're going to start at the very beginning like we 're going to talk about the cover um because I know if I saw this book as a younger Black girl, I would have grabbed it right away. So could you just share a little bit about, um, we've talked with authors in the past about cover Mm -hmm. politics and like, did you have to fight for a cover with a Black girl doing magic or did they give you full creative liberty to say Mm -hmm. like, I'm describing it, you create it. We'd love to just hear anything you have about uh, the very awesome cover.
0: Well, luckily, from the start, my publisher was the about having heavy on the cover. So I was happy about that because that's what I always kind of wanted to have, you know, see myself or representing myself and heavy in particular on the cover. So I really wanted that. They really just asked like some details, like uh, things I wanted to see, like I wanted to see the magic of the constellations on there. I wanted to see the lantern that she was carrying and different things like that. And I basically gave those details. They sent it to the artist they came back with a pretty much what the cover what you see the cover is today with some minor stuff I had like little tweaks for like getting the clothing accurate and just some minor stuff to rival dazzle things up but it was pretty close to my vision of what I wanted it to be and the more I see it the more I love it yeah that's also why I had, I offered for the the chapter inserts well, basically the top of each chapter is a constellation on there. I That's one of the suggestions I gave on publishers saying, you know, this is just very visual. And now, I mean, if people know some of the major constellations, not all of them, and one time right. I'm going to name drop, you name, name dropping them in the book. So I was like, let's have these visuals in there. I really liked, I really appreciate I was able to get those for each chapter topping.
1: When we would hear about those stories as kids, yeah. as like the stars and slavery and yes. the drinking gourd and things mm-hmm. like that. So I, that, All the magic of that, because they're, you know, it is to think about slavery can be so heavy and so draining and so sad and so we'll we'll talk a little bit further about this but i really enjoyed that you including those elements of like realism that was slaves using constellations to escape freedom in this like magical realism sense that was just like perfect
2: it is not only is the magic system really cool which uh, i definitely want to hear more about that Mm -hmm. but your ability to weave reconstruction 1870s era into a fantasy story, or maybe is it like weaving fantasy into reconstruction era? I'm not sure which one is which because they sort of so seamlessly go together, Mm -hmm. but some of the elements that sort of like really pop out to me was um, I heard you say in another interview that when like marriages or families were broken apart Mm -hmm. uh, due to slavery, that, it was as if there was a death that occurred. And so after the emancipation proclamation and, and after Juneteenth and, you know, that, that freedom, it was almost literally, and your book captures this really well. It was literally someone coming back from the dead. And that was just really compelling. And it was very emotional where you, you have um, sort of this tension at times, but of uh, uh, families rediscovering each other in, in a in a couple of different ways. And so can you talk a little bit about writing those scenes in, in the book? Okay.
0: It's, it started from when I was doing the research in the, for this area and I got really intrigued by the stories of families coming together after this through the effort after the war trying to reconnect. And I remember because I visited I made a, a couple of visits to National African American History Museum in DC. And there is a display with like sort of Basically, like a, like not a telegram, but a piece of paper of, of like an ad known as newspaper advertisement of someone uh, trying to connect with their family members. And that's, and there is, in doing the research, I found like other articles, other snippets of newspaper at that time with of these like, you know, entreaties trying to make connections. And that was something as a theme I that I saw those really strong, in particular, since I have Hetty frantically searching for her sister and other, and other characters in the book that she knows that are also doing their search for their families. And I wanted to showcase through the characters of different ways that you know they, these connections can can can, can 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 come together and have what the effects and impacts they have. Sometimes there's happy endings sometimes there's sweet ones, and sometimes they don't like come out the way you want. And I think that was an important thing for me to kind of work with through the book because the conductors in many senses is a story about what comes after and kind of rebuilding and figuring out what comes next. And I felt that's coming I mean, the families together is a very important element and theme throughout the book.
1: So to be honest, Ben was like the super sci-fi buff going into this <laughs> like love child that was yes. was our podcast. I just love reading <laughs> black authors <Yes>. and stories. <laughs> and it's so interesting how <laughs> um, you know, every story written by black authors isn't always just the magic and the elements. Mm-hmm. And I would love to talk a little bit about these complex relationships that you have between Mm -hmm. characters because in our minds as as younger black children Mm -hmm. we are given this image of like when all the slaves were free they're all everybody's fine and they're building (laughs) these thriving communities and then it's the harlem Mm -hmm. renaissance and we're Mm -hmm. all getting along and why can't we be like we used to be just all getting along and 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 i think Mm -hmm. your book does a really great job of like Well, no, there are people that wanted to honor and revere their past as a runaway or as a slave. And then there are people that are like, don't bring it up. The past is the past. I want to forget this. And then there are the Alice Grangers in the book that are like, I pass as white and good luck (laughs) with y'all. So I, I think you did. And could you just speak a little bit to that? Because I think when we all think about, you know Mm post-slavery or reconstruction we have this vision of just all black characters like holding hands in Mm -hmm. a circle and that just simply was not what it was like we're complex people and we're not a monolith so Mm -hmm. please share more about how you like so Mm -hmm. accurately like were able to do that Mm because i I don't think i've seen that in stories i've just seen like all the slaves for free got along (laughs) and hugged and and we all lived lives
0: yeah, it's it kind of goes back to what you're saying earlier, everyone's different. So I wanted to kind of showcase that. And I mean, in some ways it's for with it's for story purposes of having, you know, conf- like minor conflict between characters because Hetty's opinionated about everything. So she'll so you get a lot of her opinions about the about the characters who passed her wife or characters who want to run away from the past and those that and all those different she has all these opinions about those different things. And for me, I wanted to showcase, you know, it's everyone's doing everyone's doing different, everyone has different reactions to different things and how they because it, slavery itself is a traumatic event and how people dealt with that kind of in the Reconstruction, especially it's since it's about five years afterwards it's it shows it shows up a lot and I don't know it was important to me to show how p- the different different reactions and how and in some of in some ways it does serve the story like it's having these minor conflicts with petty just figuring out how they interact with certain people and whatnot but yeah it's yeah, it's no ways. It's, it's, it's yeah, it's basically as much So the people have different reactions, to different things, and I, well, this yeah, it's yeah, it allows different. It just allows different nuances of what's going on for me.
1: And speaking of those nuances, there was one part of the story that I didn't even consider, and I'm (laughs) sure this is just a testament to the incredible research you did Mm. for this story, but um, there was, you know, they're having conflict with their landlord and and, uh, rent control Mm. and things like that. So how, I mean, I would never think about like freed slaves having problem with rent, like, like that just (laughs) wouldn't even occur. So can you talk to me like about what research you uncovered there? And how yeah. you just made those connections. Some of it's those re-
0: it researchers, people, you know, they're having to deal with, you know, with money, of funds, and they have to think about that for the characters and self-having Bench, in particular. They, it's those most, it's mostly tied with them. They're, they're, most, they're, even though they have jobs, but they have, there's a mystery-solving stuff, but they don't get money to get paid for. There's also heavy search for her sister. Which is a lot of money to make to send for newspaper ads, to make connections, some telegrams, and as well as some wanting to support the community. I think I mentioned one point in the book, she's she takes on extra sewing jobs so she can have like money to give to collection plate at church or for the fund, there's certain like uh, mutual aids going things going on in the community because they they are, even though they're on the lower end. I guess of the, of what we call, I guess, middle middle class, for so to speak, they just, they're involved with they're, they're in, in their social social circle where people are much more well off. Or one of our friends, Marianne, for example, is on the on the richer side of things, and she is, so she's brought into she is that there's that class conflict of wanting to I guess keep up the, keep up with the Joneses, so to speak, even though, and so it's so that's the that tension there, and yeah, it's it's not really much of them this a mis-, mis money mismanagement was just trying to do everything at once and for appearance wise. And, and that's just it was a, it was an interesting conflict for her, for them to have because you don't think these characters would have issues with money because you know they they seem to be on top of things otherwise. And that was just I thought it was just another layer just to show how they're interacting with the with their lives. or and it also disconnects with them with their daily lives too because they're still kind of they're further focused on they're more focused on the mystery solving aspects, not really too concerned about their state of living affairs. For the
2: most part, something that I found uh, really compelling was these issues of Reconstruction Era mm-hmm. that you look at, right? So, say rent control. That's something yeah. that in Chicago, where you know us being based mm-hmm. in Chicago, rent control is a serious issue for Black residents. Uh, and mm-hmm. then you have like Black neighborhoods in Chicago, like Hyde Park, which are wealthier Black communities that look down on poorer mm-hmm. Black neighborhoods, like Englewood. And that's exactly what's happening in yeah. this Reconstruction era. And I was just wondering, like, what other parallels do you see between all the research you've done mm. with Reconstruction era with today, particularly?
0: I guess for the, I guess the one, I guess one big one is it's people who had didn't have. They, I guess they come up with a they have a certain like amount of security or wealth at a certain point. They're not they're eager to keep that, to hang on to that that showed up a lot with you. Look, there's been a, a lot of free Black populations long since you know, the American Revolution. And so they have a strong bases of wealth, of connections, and a place in society they don't want, really want to lose. And, and that basically travels throughout the rest of U.S. history. Certain, it's a, oh, that, that class distinction. And I know I came across some research that a lot of stuff, particularly when a lot of free men after... Civil War, they're they're seen as a sep, kind of a separate class, and it shows up a little bit. It's, it's also fairly similar. You look in New Orleans, and you look at the the, the 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 social stratification with the the free people of color, the, the Creoles, and all those different the classifications there. And it's it's just, I guess it's it's a common, sadly, it's a common thing that happens. Is because even though uh, certain groups gets ostracized by by the white majority, we have to. We feel a need to kind of break down into smaller groups even i, I guess what some people want a sense of superiority saying it's because people always want to have someone else to look down upon and it's it's an intriguing look from a, a psychology from a sociology point of view and and it's and, and sadly it seems it seems fairly tricky if those things still continue on into the modern day uh
2: something that uh you know that you've done so well is this mm-hmm. develop this magic system and uh, you sort of have yeah. these two competing magic systems, yeah. I should say. Right? You have right. the um, the constellation uh, uh, celestial magic, and then you mm-hmm. have sorcery. But something that sort of like sort of hit me. Um, I, I don't know if you, you intended this or not, but that even in a world of magic where you think there would be um, post scarcity, you yeah. still have like white supremacy yeah. inflicting slavery. And it's sort of just like, I was uh-huh. like, oh, white white supremacy is going to, you know, pre- like, I don't want to say prevail, but it's going, it it's in a world even with magic. Uh-huh. And so um, can you sort of uh, share a little uh-huh. bit about these two magic systems and sort of their context within uh, slavery? Uh,
0: I guess the the main area I kind of start with, I started out with the world of everyone has magic because one, it's, it's, it felt... I think it was I was brilliant magic system. It made sense for me to have a everyone is different kind of magic. Everyone is can do magic, but there's different ways magic kind of shows up, and and that's that that's that's more of it. That's most prevalent when you look at the my, the two systems of celestial and sorcery. I have celestial as the main is the main magic that you know the main characters utilize. That the heavy and Benja use all the time to basically ent- to all is to everything from their day-to-day stuff to solving their, their their magic their mystery solving basically it's like the i was i was really i'm mean, a big fan of astronomy and astrology so I'd, i i look to the stars as my as my inspiration for the constellation i also like the visual of you know heady just drawing like the canis minor little dogs constellation having the image of like an actual dog appearing made of stars and running around as the element to like you know worker magic whether it's sniffing out like traces of magic everywhere and that just feel like it's the stars it felt like a really fun element for that and it also ties into more making it more naturalistic since they're like it's coming from the stars and from nature and sort of fairly organic and that's with sorcery which is the typical you know the wands the spell books rigid the western europe kind of sh- like all these rules and restrictions and it's just not as organic, not as, is more combining. And I thought that was a really good mix. It makes, this sets them up to really good contrast. And I think it built in different weaknesses or and strengths, like even though the like, con- con- celestial magic has the strength of being able to last longer, he has the drawbacks of the, the visual light. It's hard, you have, you'll have you see the light of magic happening. You have to actually draw out, but it takes time. And in sorcery, it's like, you know, they have the wands enchantments that's a little bit weaker but you can, you can yell out whatever nonsense charm there is and magic happens and yeah those you yeah, the basic systems and and then' in a the sense for the the magic allows allows me to play around with some of the, the activity around the world a bit and it shows up a lot when I just just basically how they enter the use the magic to interact with the you know, mystery solving to minor minor things in the background
1: I I loved the <laughs> The also the use of like weaving the magic into clothes. Mm-hmm. I was like, this is the blackest thing ever because I, I was like, of course, mm-hmm. they would find ways to like also put use yes. it differently and mm-hmm. healing salves and things like that. I, th- like, those visuals were just so helpful. Um, mm-hmm. and and I and we needed that in this world where like when we think of magic, we do think of Harry mm-hmm. Potter, we do think of like swish and flip. Mm-hmm. It was super fun, um, to have our magic in this story, be based so much in astrology. So I, I would really love to hear more mm-hmm. about that because you're a Gemini, right? Yeah. And so mm-hmm. um, so I'm not a super big astronomy person. I, I know what our signs are, but I don't know mm-hmm. what that means in the context yeah. of it. But this book actually did make me want to do a little bit more digging. Mm-hmm. And I also noticed um, in a really fun way that mm-hmm. the, the prevalence of the astronomy almost... I don't want to say it took place of religion, but there were a couple Mm -hmm. of things where I was like, I begin to notice in my Mm -hmm. everyday speech, because I'm like a a Southern black girl. Yeah, We're in Chicago now, but like, just every day, you'll say something like, "Oh my, oh my God!" Like, "Lord, have mercy," or something. And then yeah. in this book, it would be like "Stars Align." Like, it would say, it, there would be the yeah. replacement language. Mm-hmm. So, please, uh which I'm sure was very intentional. So please yeah. talk us through just like your love of astrology and yeah. how you sort because the characters mm-hmm. in this book still went to church, and also. Mm-hmm. So, t- please talk me through how you like made those two worlds just yeah. collide in like the most beautiful way.
0: Oh no, it just. This is, this is most, this, all is the star stuff. It's just me, my love of astronomy, astrology is coming through. It's like all the little places that the, uh, I mentioned this, uh, uh, the astronomy stuff. It's just, just for me having fun with it. I think I even wrote out all the astronomy, astrology signs for each of the characters. And just, because, and even though it's, it's actually really funny, I, I, I think I just, it's, I ended up like, you know, I want to have them like paired up a bit in the sense that I have like, you know, Hedy's star sign is Sagittarius. And her, her, her moon is Capricorn, and Benji's reverse being a Capricorn sun and a Sagittarius moon. And that was, it was really funny. I might pick them out as like randomness, but it worked out when I looked and actually looked all that stuff up. But yeah, but in general, like all the astronomy stuff, all astrology stuff, it's, it's me having fun. It's seeing, like, you know placing in little jokes here and there. because I think I'll, anytime I, I, I mentioned, I, if I mentioned like an astrology sign, you'd be recognized like Scorpio, Taurus, whatever. There's, some of those signs are deliberate, or sometimes I'll have a pair of them up. I think I'd, I think, I can't remember if it's in this book, but I like, think you know, I have, like, I have, there's a fire, if there's a fire going on, I'll use like a water sign, like Pisces, to like knock it out. Or maybe sometimes the water barrier is, a little, is from Aquarius, being like a little a nod for certain things. And actually, the the curse sigil I had mentioned throughout the throughout the, throughout the book, the serpent bearer, was actually inspired with all the the nonsense that came out about the 13th Zodiac sign a few years ago. Because apparently, oh, please
1: yeah, share. Yeah,
0: yeah, I, I came across a few like you know articles and the random like talking people like freaking out because a 13th because the serpent bearer was like you know it was this, was being known I guess the. By this, I guess, I don't know, I don't, I don't think it's NASA, but someone scientific, it's another sign, basically. So all the of people were freaking out because, you know, it adding a different, adding a 13 sign will shift all the, the you know, the dates for the rest of the signs. So people were freaking out. And, you know, just, and I was thinking that in mind, like thinking, they like, want to make a curse sigil. I was like, let's make the serpent barrier that one, just for that kind of joke.
1: And like yeah. if you it's a nice nod, if you're good on yeah. your signs, it, mm-hmm. it made me so sometimes Ben will do things on the internet yeah. where people were like, is he an Aries? Because I just know he's a, which yes. I, he is yes. Aries, but I don't know what that meant. like what people are saying when they do yes. that. But it did make me want to like, please share if you have yes. all of the Aries tea, but um, <laughs> it did make me want to be like, I need to get into this because yes. I Like people love this and it's been around for years. Like, oh yeah. Like people. I mean, it's millennium.
0: Yeah, it's, it's fun. And and even though people say it's not true, but you know, my coworkers, friends, they mention their birth dates. I kind of mentally calculate their, their signs and I'm like, (laughs) it checks out. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I would never say it wasn't true. If somebody's telling yeah. me like, we know your husband is an Aries, give uh-huh. me the birthday now, I'm going to trust them. I just, uh-huh. it's so, it, it got me excited uh-huh. about it um in a way because of that. And I, I really love how you changed the character's language because it uh-huh. was such a star based. Um, yeah world and 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 that world but it was just like so consistent i i I hope our listeners who are big into astrology like catch that uh the serpent curse part. oh
2: yeah if you like astrology at all like this is a book for you like a hundred percent um without a doubt but uh Also, if you like technology, this is also the book for you as well. So even Mm. though you have magic in it, Mm. I really enjoyed how you weave technology. Uh particularly Mm. um without getting too spoilery, Mm. but uh the slowness of mail, right? Which Mm. sort of has a really important plot point Mm -hmm. and and almost like heart wrenching, right? Mm -hmm. Like it was just oh it just it was it was sad. That's why the
1: last pages of the book, I was like, You got to be kidding. (laughs) (laughs) This mail finally comes, and this is what we get.
2: Yeah, so it's it's the slowness of mail, the slowness of travel. Um, can you share a little bit about how you thought about technology and the tech and the conductors?
0: Yeah, it's mostly it's it's also it's mostly me stepping back to the 19th century mindset because we're used to today, you know, email, phone calls, all this rapid fire communication, like, Uber,
1: like let's go, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, it's more of me getting the back of that mindset. That everything takes much longer. You know, there's a dis- these distances that we're so used to of passing within, you know within, like, you know, within like several minutes in the car. It takes hours by foot and stuff like that. And it's the scale of things. And I don't know, I guess playing with time is being more cognizant of like, you know, these things take longer. And I think I remember uh, when I was charting out, like, because when I did, I did like several interludes like kind of which act as flashbacks to their days as conductors. I had to think. I actually had to pull out some maps, figuring out how long they would take to get to X, y, X, Y, and Z amount of time. I actually pulled out, I even moved the Google map over to walk to get an idea of, like, you know, how long it would take them to travel through these places. And yeah, because by foot, because, you know, they don't, they don't have cars, <laughs> just traveling, that sort of thing. Yeah, and it's just, it's just, it just, I think it's, and it's also just one of those layers to have fun with. But even though I think there's, but at the same time, there is magic, I have some leeway to, like, I could bring things up to speed earlier because so I mentioned in the Mola book there's a bicycle race and there's bicycles around and while bicycles were you know coming out around this time period I think the particular bicycle model I allude to was maybe a few years earlier but I play I blow I, I basically blow it off and, you know somebody having a dream about this sort of thing and you know that because I really wanted to put bicycles a bicycle race in this book <laughs> so it's like you know I have magic I can have some leeway and it's it's that's that's, that's like that's the the, the the thing I think about a lot because even I try to be historically accurate because I picked this historical time period but I have magic so I can have I can I don't have to be precise but sometimes that makes it it makes it gives a a more creative error because I found out in my research that like you know like push pins weren't really invented till later and I had this idea I wanted them to solve the murder mysteries and having a map and having like pins stuck in their locations mm-hmm. like and the finding string. out yeah, yeah the string. Yeah. And because you know the push pins weren't invented so much later, I was like, no, it's her sewing pens of strings and old, old hair pens. And that just became a lark But it ended up becoming like a really big item in the in the book from just mystery solving to like, you know, the the personal arcs that they have within there. Just a is a little off thing, and like that's a, that's like one maybe that's the good side of like that sometimes technology not being what I need to be, so it allows me to be more creative and bring mm. things that I wouldn't have thought otherwise.
2: And I've recently come across this term, uh, hero compared to the Edisonade hero, uh, referring to the inventor and mathematician uh, mm. Benjamin uh, Banneker. Uh, mm. and I, I think I heard you mention that Benji's sort of based on. Uh, yes. Banneker
0: a little mm-hmm. bit. Yeah, I and took his so, name from there.
2: <laughs> yeah, I love that. I love that. I was like, oh, this is great. Uh, mm-hmm. And so basically, this term is like mm-hmm. the uh, the hero is in reference to Afrofuturist writers who mm-hmm. present uh, black male scientists inventors who um, are the heroes, and they subvert mm-hmm. this idea of scient- anti scientific thinking mm-hmm. um, within black communities. To uh, and they use their scientific you know uh, prowess to overcome Western oppressors mm-hmm. or villains. Who sort of use uh, Western tools? And uh, reading this, you know, I was just curious, like how you see yourself within like the Afrofuturistic um, movement, uh, at, if at all, if you see yourself within that context, um, and if you want to just yeah. share a little bit about that.
0: Okay, I think at first when I was hearing more about the, the Afrofuturist movement, I was thinking I'm writing like you know talking about the past, and that's not really good. It's not the future part, right? It's in the past. You no, know, but the more I thought about it and I guess more of writing stuff, and I feel like it does have a place, because I'm, I'm, I'm from a place in the present reimagining a possible past, and taking certain liberties, and just exploring possibilities, and, yeah, and, and then they put in this, in my view of the world, is, you not know, that they, they have magic, and then possibly, I mean, I'm not sure how, I don't know, because, like, you know, it's, uh, yeah, magic is a, could change certain things a lot, because I know a lot of times when a I was reading a lot of books talking about historical things. I know that someone had told me, like you know, what like magic will probably change up a progression of, t- of technology. That's probably yeah. They think it will change up, you know, what we, what we what we know as history and stuff. And thinking, I feel I feel part of that the alphabet futurist movement in the sense that I'm just reimagining different things.
1: We we researched that you researched um, because Hetty is a seamstress, um, and you read a, a journal by a seamstress to sort of like get more in tune with that, please share. I'd love to know, I honestly wanna know how long did it take you to make this story? Because I feel like (laughs) your research was so thorough, um, but to get that nuance, please tell us like how you stumbled upon like the seamstress and and (laughs) that first prior to writing. And then just, I'd love to hear about like the timeline of research (laughs) from start to finish with this whole, Amalgamation. of the books.
0: Well, I have to say, re- the research is is ongoing. It's I'm still researching in this in the sense, even though the book's done technically. It's yeah, I basically just had an idea for these characters, and I just research to get a, get, get myself grounded and make sure I'm being kind of accurate. Because I think you know, I start off with my my what like, like common knowledge of this time period, and like you know, even though it was kind of accurate, I want to get I wanted to hone in on certain details. And, you know, I, just, I basically, just, I mean, I started broadly just looking at the world itself, getting a sense of, you know, what's the post-Civil War era, what's, what's Civil War time, what's even even going back to Antebellum time. Then I started the narrow end, once I decided on Philadelphia, then I did, you know, started, and I started looking at particular people of interest that lived in Philadelphia, either during that time or slightly before. And I started, you know, getting inspired by these real-life people to make some of the characters. Like, all the, all the characters are not, like, one-to-one uh, versions of these real-life people, but they, they took certain aspects of it. There was, there was, there was a poet, an, act, an activist, a uh, uh, Frances Harper, that was an inspiration for uh, uh, a heavy figure, uh, like, maternal figure, Cora, as in the sense that she was an activist and role-involved. And she was almost a poet, but I ended up cutting that bit up there. But there's, yeah, lots of characters like that. I think Penelope was... I was also inspired by this. All those, all those stories about people of, of, of from people living on the foundation being root workers, working with herbs, and she was also. I think parts of her interest in music was of, was inspired by like, the jubilee singers, basically, and, and all this sort of things like that, and just I kind of just basically drawing the, the different resources and kind of following the, the rabbit holes of where the research led me, and that's how I found that journal of. Emily Davis, the, the seamstress in Philadelphia, because that, that was something I just found just randomly, and it actually it was actually a really good tool for giving me of pulling out different little aspects of it from because it's because the book's based because the journal's based on her day to day life. She doesn't really she comments you know complains about the weather, being sick, visiting her friends, but there's also like some things I was able to pull out of there of uh, things like uh, there was a basically a friendship album that shows up in that book, which I use as a of, of, of a of a plot point in the the subplots with Hetty and her friends, because a friendship album is basically like a scrapbook where they collect like drawings, of uh, me- mementos, of comments, and all those different things like that. And I thought that was really cool, and and I thought it was a good way to, to utilize in Hetty's story with her conflict with her with her older her old friend that she's kind of fallen out with, and using that as a big, a, b- a big moment within that within that subplot of you know. Of, her giving back the the friendship album and seeing these pages and letting the reader kind of fully see that they really are friends because you know it starts out because they you when you first meet uh uh hetty and her and his old friends they aren't really seeing eye to eye they had this big conflict before the book started and they don't really either you, know, you keep you, you keep readers probably questioning like, why are she considered a friends and i thought this friendship album i found through the research so there's a good way to kind of show and the end of this of this arc of like just how important this role was to me and it just and it's just and to me also as the writer it's just an interesting artifact of that time period of how people how they communicated with people and how they uh, interact with their friends because they didn't see not all the even if they had letters they didn't but they didn't see their friends all the time this friendship album was like kind of a a big version of a letter like i guess it's kind of a social media in the sense because it's all that information Like a photo <laughs> yeah because they would pass around within friendship groups and so i thought that was it just ends up being really perfect and things. And then lots of times when I'm doing research, these things will pop up like that. And I would just find a way to weave it into the story because it's really cool to me. And, I, and it really works for the story I'm telling.
1: How, how long ago did you, or how many years would you say, went into The Conductors with all of the research oh. and everything?
0: Yeah, I started seriously writing it in, in 2015. And I think I did the first draft and I went back and this I was doing research alongside of it and the additional research afterwards and kind of built into that and it I think it was I think I'd, I' was out, kind of on pause about maybe about a year or two afterwards because I had I had initially had, had that out on uh, agents to you know to query and whatnot wasn't getting by it, so I switched to, to a different project but it wasn't until 2018 I really revisited revisited because mostly I had some ideas I wanted to revamp, and also because that's when I got my agent. He was like, let's see what she rewrote basically. Cause I had sent her had some stuff earlier. So I read basically read that, did that. And once I got the agent, I was like, you know, it's time to make more, I guess they're diving in to make things more more precise in a sense. Cause I, I have like, you know, it's more real and it's not just you no know, resting on my computer drives. It's like this fun project. Now I have to make sure I'm accurate with the history. And then, kind of as throughout the revision process, until I turned it in in the late 2019, as more of the final version of it stuff, I kind of kept researching off and on just to add certain things in there, clarify, make sure certain things fit. Like for example, uh, one of Teddy's friends, a um, uh, George, was a if he was he was a soldier during thir- during the Civil War, and I had I re- remember researching his like unit, where he was, in what kind of. Gave him a unit name where he might be involved. Kind of figure out what kind of path would he be from, like whether, like where would he be recruited in Philadelphia to where his, where his like you know kind of path would end up being. Even though it doesn't really take, doesn't really get screen time in the book, but if I'm going to drop some name drops and references like that. I want to make sure it's accurate. I think I mentioned him being like a, a veteran of the Battle of the Crater, which basically when the, the, the armies basically made a crater, literally like blew up Samaria and stuff like that. And I think. And like, let's making sure that I'm going to name drop different references. It's kind of, it's kind of accurate. So I kind of just went back and kind of fine fine-tuned and prune certain things. And yeah, it's, yeah, but it's basically, like I said, the research is like kind of ongoing with stuff, but yeah, it's, it's, it seems like it, it, it seems like a lot, but I guess because I did it alongside of writing these things, it didn't feel too overwhelming.
1: I would love to hear just like in our last few minutes, just any, <laughs> Not hurdles, but like Mm -hmm. any challenges that you've sort of experienced as a black woman writing in science fiction.
0: Oh yeah, I guess I guess for me, I think the biggest challenge was imposter syndrome. A lot of times, thinking like, oh, it's it's you know whether it's like you know ideas not that great, not creative, or and this is because break it's hard to break into publishing and whatnot, and feeling like you know you're adequate, and also I guess this time thing too. I think because I work full time on on top of writing. That I feel like I don't have enough time to write all these bunch of books that have, you know, ready to go all this time. Like it's, I feel like I'm like, you know, it's, it's and it's also, like you're, since you're, and also it's a sense of, you know, you're just coming out, you're, you're a new writer and stuff. So it's a, uh, you're breaking out the field that's lots of established people and you don't have much of a backlog and backlist and whatnot. Just, just feeling, feeling you're finding your place there. And, and then there's, I mean, there's days where I'm like, I'm the best writer ever. I'm making this book that's going to re- change everything. <laughs> then sometimes you get slapped reality and people haven't heard of it and stuff like that. But it's, you know, it's, it's kind of figuring out the balance and kind of ignoring those voices out there and just kind of sticking, sticking what you want. And I think also found for me, it's personally, it's kind of this, I uh, kind of raising my voice to uh, asking questions, asking for things that usually I would I would not think I would, wouldn't get like I got something in the mail the other day. I, cause I asked my publisher, like, can I have this? And I'll, I'll, I'm being vague about it. I'm, I might be able to showcase a little bit later, but you know, it's, it's one of the things I asked for, you know, cause I was a bit, I spent like weeks and, and like agonizing of like, should I ask for this? Should I do this on my mm-hmm. own? But then I asked the publisher and yeah. like, they're like, they're okay, we'll do this for you. And I was like, this was so easy. why <laughs> I think that.
2: It's so interesting it was- that you mentioned imposter syndrome because like mm-hmm. You know, I spent a lot of time, you know, listening to interviews uh, by mm-hmm. you. Uh, you know, you filled up six notebooks of, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the backward of notes. Uh, I think you mentioned that you like walked uh, through Philadelphia to sort of see the paths. Is that? Uh, am I remembering that correctly? I don't
0: think I, I planned to go to Philadelphia before.
2: Oh, <laughs> I planned COVID.
0: for yeah, COVID yeah, yeah. had to be.
2: But sort of like you, I think you mentioned like like sort of seeing the roots, doing all this planning, and like this is an incredible book. But then like this idea of being seen as Mm -hmm. like not that right, like Mm -hmm. having this own image, and there's this really um, intense moment where uh, Hetty sort of sees Benji as like this soft spoken, like creative character, but Mm -hmm. then you know you write this like really intense um like boxing scene where mm-hmm. you describe like ben, the scar on Benji's face and how everybody mm-hmm. sees him as like this mm-hmm. you know physical you know spectacle or whatever mm-hmm. and sort of you you sort of play with this idea of perception mm-hmm. um do, do you remember like how that scene came about uh and sort of what you were thinking uh with that yeah. uh, the boxing match there
0: yeah it's that scene actually had a lot of different directions because I had, I got, I was looking. At, I remember looking into boxing, reading about uh, of, how black men use boxing as a way to get wealth and status at the time, because in some ways is a way, is a quick way to get money at a particular time, in the late nineteenth century, early twentieth century, and just reading, a lot, seeing some of the the, the posters and all the talking about that, that was, it really intrigued me, and. I guess I like the idea of have having it kind of involved with Benji's character because it goes alongside of, I guess in the blacksmith kind of character and all those different aspects of it. But I like the idea of, of contrasting it to, to uh, it's, it's something. It's like he's it's something that you know it, it, from the outside it might seem like oh it's typical the blacksmith likes the box, but for Eddie is more like you know it's this is something his her husband, he's like you know the book bookish kind of like writes to read likes the science stuff, but does boxing because he thinks it's fun. We
1: just Mm -hmm. want to thank you so much for spending your afternoon with us, talking about this incredible book that we both really enjoyed. I cannot cannot believe you experience imposter syndrome, but of course we all do. (laughs) Do you have anything else coming up that people should be um, on the lookout for? Any sort of website or Patreon or anything that we can drop to uh, support you in any way?
0: Well, book two is coming out in November, November 9th. And it's gonna be like the first book, it's gonna be available both in the US and the UK within a couple of days of this within a couple of days of each other. So if you're if you love the conductors, check it out. It's, it's basically it picks up a couple months after the events of the first book and involves a mystery that seemed like it's been solved but might not be. And puts the and Benji are up there to figure out and go into uh, like a web of of interesting a, a tangled twists and turns. Uh, other places to uh, kind of keep up with me, would be my website. It's basically, it's, it's Nicole-Glover.com. And um, up on social media periodically um, on Twitter, it's, it's Nicole Glower, just replace the V with a W.
1: Thanks, everyone, for listening. That was Nicole Glover. We have included all of Nicole's information in the episode notes. And up next, it's spooky season, y'all. We get into that black horror bag. We'll be watching Ganja and Hess. This is a 1973 classic. It's going to be on Hulu. That's where we're going to be watching it. So be sure to watch Ganja and Hess, and we will see y'all next week for the show. Bye, y'all.